So John chapter 11, verse 1. Now there was a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant talking or taking a rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console uh, them concerning their brothers. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you now and we ask that you would breathe the life into us. Physically, yes, Lord, but even more so we ask this morning spiritually. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I am dressed in black because we have come to a funeral. We're here at the funeral. And you and I were here at this open casket. You're looking down at a loved one of yours whose body is now deceased. And for whatever reason, at these sort of moments is when people will tend to say all sorts of bizarre things. And so a relative looks on at this open casket and says, my, my, look how beautiful they look. And you're thinking, beautiful? They're dead. And at that point, another relative comes in and says, well, well, you know, just I'm so glad that 
Even though they're gone, they will, they will continue to live on. They're going to keep on living on because they will live on in our memories. And you're thinking, if that's what living on is, is living on in your memory, well, what a letdown, tremendous letdown. I, I, I mean, let's be honest for a moment. My kids, when I die, they're going to remember me. That's just how it is. My grandkids, if I have some, they'll likely remember me as well. My great-grandkids, possibly. My great-great-grandkids, to, to them, their memory of me will be in some sort of digital family tree and name with a couple of dates. That's it. And so, let me be honest, if that's what it means to live on in their memory, you can keep it. I don't want it. And maybe you're with us this morning, and, and you think, these Christians here, wow, I mean, Essentially, what they're de- doing is simply just trying to feel a little bit better about the inevitable meaninglessness of our living on. Like the person at the open casket, you're saying, well, at least they're, they're living on. It's just a, just a pipe dream. Well, I want to push back just for a moment here and say, let's be a little bit more humble about this because there is a reason that Christianity exploded off the map in first century. And it was not because Jesus Christ came along and said, hey, just want you to know that if you follow me, then I'm going to provide for you power and, and finances and, and fame and life's going to go swimmingly well. No, friends, it was quite the opposite. Jesus promised that if you follow him, it's going to mean hardship and poverty and great difficulties and trials and persecution. So then why the explosion of Christianity? Well, because Jesus did what we are about to read that Lazarus did right here. He got up from the grave and he was seen and he was touched and he was loved and worshiped by the apostles and by eventually over 500 people before he ascended into heaven. All this, friends, all this is in seed form right here in this morning's passage. Here in John chapter 11. We, you and I, in John chapter 11, were standing here at the open casket, as it were, of Lazarus. And as you and I were looking here at this open casket, we see Lazarus is dead, and we turn to Jesus and we say, Jesus, do you even care? Jesus, can you do something about this? And this, this is where this morning we're going to see a little bit of a sandwiching effect. And so we begin with Lazarus, and we'll kind of close with Lazarus. Uh, that's the pieces of the bread of the sandwich. It's Lazarus dies and then Lazarus rise. And in the middle is the meat of the sandwich, which is Jesus, in which we see Jesus speaks and Jesus weeps. So for those of you following along, we'll see Lazarus dies, Jesus speaks and Jesus weeps, and then we'll conclude with, ja- with Lazarus rise. So first, Lazarus dies. It's interesting here that we know particular names in this section. Think back to to John chapter 2 for just a minute and ask yourself, the the wedding in Cana, the wedding in Cana with the the couple who, where Jesus turned the water into wine, what was that couple's name? Don't know. What about John chapter 4, where we see there that there was this official son who was healed? What was his name? Or what about the man who was healed in John chapter 5, who had been been, uh, lame for 38 years? And then we see the blind man in John chapter 9 who was, who was blind from birth but was healed and able to see. We don't know any of their names. But here, here we see Lazarus and Mary 
Martha. And why are they named? Why? Well, we learned that these people are not random strangers to, to Jesus. They know Jesus, and Jesus knows them intimately. Here, Jesus, for the first time, really in this gospel, we're seeing love emanating from Jesus. You say, well, wait a sec. I mean, this book is a book about love and God, is it not? I mean, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And yes, God has been displayed already as loving. But here, particularly, for the very first time, we see intimate love from Jesus himself, God the Son. And here, Jesus will make it clear that this healing will be like the man who was born blind in John chapter 9. It will turn out to be a healing for God's glory and even for the glorifying of the Son. And yet, there's a little bit of a tension in this. Jesus, here, in order to go do this healing with Lazarus, it means he's heading back into the lion's den. Um, He's going back to Judea, where the Jews were just trying to kill him, just trying to stone him. And, and to return there to heal Lazarus will actually put his own life at risk. So that, this is brought Lord, are you sure you want to go back in there? And then Jesus says, says he's speaking about light, light and darkness, which is a theme we've seen in the Gospel of John already, in John 8 and John 9. And we see here where Jesus you know, said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then here... This idea of light and, and the good works that Jesus seems to be saying, is, it, it's his way of saying, I've come to do the good things during the daytime. Uh, I've come to do the good work for the, during the day to the glory of God, and I will do this work, and I will not fear those who walk in darkness. Hamilton puts it this way. He says, Jesus is confident that his opponents can do nothing to him until the day ends and the night comes. What night is that? The night when the soldiers are coming along and they stumble back in the darkness as they come to capture Christ. And then, here we see this in verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us, let, let us also go that we may die with him. Friends, what if, what if death was like, I don't know, taking a nap? Nobody gets excited when somebody takes a nap. I mean, I know some of you guys, you get excited about the fact that you're about to take a nap, but, but nobody gets excited when they find out that somebody is taking a nap because they're like, well, they're taking a nap. They're just going to wake up. And, and, and I wonder how much it is that death is supposed to be treated like that for us. We essentially, for those who die in Christ, that is our attitude because first Thessalonians chapter four is where Paul makes it very clear. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed brothers about those who've fallen asleep as though you grieve as others who do not have hope. How much is it so that scripture speaks of death for those who believe as though it's just taking a a nap, just sleeping. And here, Thomas, he gets a a bad rap as he's intaking all of this. Um, I think Thomas is often misunderstood. Um, He's often called doubting Thomas, but here I think we see strong devotion. There seems to be a debate. Is he saying, hey, Jesus, if you're going to go back into the lion's den and be killed, uh, let us go with you and die with you. 
That, that's one way of reading this. There's another way in which he's saying, well, if Lazarus is dying and falling asleep and then we'll resurrect, let's go do that likewise with him. And there's a bit of a confusion on this. But either way, what we hear is a strong devotion to Christ. So this brings us to this point where we see that Jesus speaks and Jesus weeps. Pick up at verse 17 with me here. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. We'll pause there. Now, we we hear this first from Martha in verses 21 and 22, that this faith that Martha had, uh, but, but also a vague hope of something perhaps happening beyond just trusting the Lord here. And then we hear it again from her sister Mary later down in verse 32, where she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why is this even all brought up? Well, <laughs> because back just in verse 6, we read this tension. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Do you get it? Lord, if you had been here. Lord, if you had been here. And we know that he could have been there in time. But rather, to rush to get to Lazarus, he delays. Jesus delays. He purposely waits two days Why does Jesus delay? So that he can be right on time. Jesus delays always so that he can be there at the right moment. Christian, do you believe this? Have you been stuck in your dead-end job and you're just waiting for that promotion or you're waiting for that different change? Have you been dealing with a painful health condition Are you waiting for the perfect spouse? Are are you dealing with your children's health issues? Is that causing you anxiety? Are you looking for healing in your marriage? Do you believe that Jesus is always right on time? And that he in his timing and in his way, when the conditions are perfect for your sanctification, for your growth, he will provide. He will restore. He will heal. He will lift up. And maybe, maybe for some of us, Jesus is waiting for that right moment when he will take you home. And I don't mean to the address down the road here in Welch's. You and I, we can think, Lord, Lord, you, if you would have done this and this at that exact same moment that I really needed it, this and this and this would not have turned out to happen this way. But friends, you and I, we are so limited in our understanding of what the Lord is up to. But we can think back in scripture and in our life, but we think back in scripture the number of times where the Lord was right on time. We think with Abraham where he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And and Abraham's getting old and it's just like, this is not going to happen. And what's, what's going to come of this? And yet the Lord was right on time. We think of the the Hebrews where they're running from the Egyptian army and they're trying to get away and they're coming down to the Red Sea and there's nowhere to go and it's too late. But God is always right on time time. We need to remember this morning, as we get in our little car of life, 
You and I, when we get in this car and we're just unsure where this whole thing is going to go, and you and I, we always look back because the rear is clear, but the front is foggy. We have to remember that sometimes Christ's timing just won't make sense to you. Sometimes in our earthly minds, our way of thinking, none of this is just adding up. So will you join me in just trusting? Will you join me in just saying, if I could, if I could listen to all that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are talking about my certain circumstance, if I knew all that they knew and the way things are working out, I wouldn't change a thing. Because I would get it. I would see it. But let me remind you that the pattern for us right now as Christians is always the same pattern. It's suffering now and glory later. It's suffering now and glory later. This was the model in Jesus' life. Suffering now, resurrection, glory after. What kind of glory is that? What kind of glory could this possibly be? Well, it's right here at verse 23. Read with me where he says, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who's coming into the world. That great statement there. I think let's be honest for just a moment here as we really consider this. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, how can we really fully understand what he even means there? I mean, this is a difficult thing to even wrap our minds around it. I'm not saying that the Bible is not clear or they're not given some sort of understanding, but I wonder if at some level we're tapping into things we have yet to fully realize and understand. You know when the baby is in the womb? And you're talking to the baby at the belly and it's moving and kicking. And you say, once you come out of there, I know you're living right now inside there, but once you come out, that's when you'll really start. That's where you really start to live, right? Right now, all they hear is the sweet sound of their mother's voice. And they hear, um, you know, maybe the dad occasionally hollering at them and they um, see the orangish red colors kind of percolating through, but they have almost no understanding of what it really means to live yet. I, I wonder how much... That is where we're at, where we only understand a vague idea of what living will be like with the resurrection. What will our bodies be like? What will it be like to be free of sin? All these things. John, in First John, he, he says this, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Still, with our limited Understanding, I think there are things we can grasp on. There are things, categories that we can work through together. And so scripture makes it very clear that there are two deaths, our physical death and our spiritual death. And what Jesus is saying in the fact that he says, I am the resurrection, he's not saying that the physical death won't touch us, but he is making it very clear the spiritual death for those who trust in him will not. We think of Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, where it reads, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over over such, the second death has no power. And so we pray and we hope for Jesus' return, but assuming that the Lord tarries, everyone here will go into the ground. 
And Jesus' radical claim that he is the resurrection then is not proclaiming that he will resurrect from the dead after the cross. That's true, he will do that. But his proclamation here that I am the resurrection is one in which he is declaring to us that he is the source of this resurrection. The one whom over such the second death has no power. This power over death is accessed then by you and I through Christ. In Christ, we have the death of death. Not only is the promise for those in Christ that they will not spiritually die, but they will face a bodily resurrection, and this bodily resurrection will undo their physical death. They will get new bodies, glorified bodies, resurrection bodies. Friends, for you computer nerds here, this is 2.0. This is the upgrade. And it's, it's like going from Windows 95 to, well, win, let's say Windows 7. <laughs> Windows 8, you don't want to go there. But, but it's, an, it's, it's tremendous, and we have no idea what this will fully entail. So Martha uh, is speaking with Jesus, and Jesus is asking Martha, do, do you believe this? And therefore, I'm asking you this morning, do you believe this? I I, I don't mean, do you believe Jesus existed? That's not what I'm asking you. Or do you believe that Jesus did a miracle? No. Do you believe, verses 25 through 26, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Everything hinges on that. Don't go out of here this morning without settling that in your heart and your mind. The response of those people who Jesus will, will resurrect is, is Martha's response, where she says so clear, clearly here, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. And if your response is not yet where Martha's is, can I just encourage you, maybe after, I'll be back by the double doors, if you could see an elder here or, or talk with me, I would love to talk with you more about this. Here though, we need to really engage with Jesus' words. Are these words true? Maybe, maybe you don't believe this, but recognize, if you're saying that these words that Jesus says are not true about him being the resurrection, you are calling Jesus a liar. The position that you don't want to hold is that Jesus was just some really nice guy who wanted to make people feel better. That's rubbish. Jesus is not the guy at the casket just trying to give us warm fuzzies that don't really mean anything, that just tried to cover up the meaninglessness of life. No, he's trying to give you this morning real meaning and reality in your life. Jesus is the resurrection, and moreover, the reason that we want to be with him is that in him we finally see love and and compassion, and empathy that no one else has for you. So we turn now to see how Jesus weeps. We heard how Jesus speaks about his resurrection. Look how he weeps. Verse 35, Jesus wept. This is the only Bible verse I have memorized. Jesus wept. I, I think it's worthy that they made it Two words, this verse, they could have added onto it and, and tucked it in. But as they were going through and doing the, the verses here for the Bible, they, they stopped and said, this is worth just pausing. Jesus wept. 
It's an amazing expression of love that Jesus has here. I'm not sure how many of you may be like me where you struggle a little bit more with God, the sense of God's love because, hey, I mean, if God is, is, is sovereign, if he's in control of these things, if he knows everything that's gonna be ha- happening, I mean, wh- why, why get all worked up? What's the big deal? We, we know how this is all gonna work out. I mean, after all, did Jesus not say at the very beginning of this passage where he says, this will not end in death? He says it. He knows it's not gonna end in death. So why does Jesus Weep. I, I, I think we have to be careful not to systematize everything that tends towards some sort of philosophy of understanding that I think will be challenged because it's shaking us up from some sort of view of God where he's merely just a stoic, cold, calculated person. I think what we find here is in Jesus, we have a God man who feels pain and sorrow and love. What we come face to face with here in Jesus is we have a savior who is really moved by the sorrow of separation. Remember that death ultimately, physically and spiritually connected, brings separation. Recall that Lazarus was Jesus' friend whom he loved. But Lazarus was a sinner. And Lazarus was facing the same fate that you and I face outside of Christ, which is a death leading to a death. Physical death followed by spiritual death. And, and this separation is a cutting off that is final and forever. And even the mere thought of this possibility of separation brings Jesus to the most reasonable thing. Tears. Death screams at you and I, something is wrong. And even though Christ has come with the answer to this dark, dark stain, he's still moved by the heartache of separation and, and death. And so on one hand, friend, I want to encourage you, Christian, that you, you need to give yourself permission as God's people to join him in anguish. Someone may say to you too quickly when you've lost the loved one, oh, don't worry, you know, you'll see them again because we know they're a Christian and they trust in Christ and they're in heaven with Jesus right now and don't worry, you'll see them again. Mm. To be human is to be made in God's image, to feel like Jesus did the despair of death. This despair that we sit in is, is a heaviness that you need to give yourself permission to do that. You need to give yourself permission to feel the weight of that. That is good. And yet at the same time, brother or sister in Christ here, I just want to remind you that's half the story. So at the same time, while we give ourselves permission to feel the weight of death, we also are preaching the gospel to ourselves. We're reminding ourselves of the other side of the story, and that's where this goes. It's exactly where this goes. If you don't hear anything else from this morning's message, I want you to hear this, that Jesus Christ not only shows that he has empathy for those who are reeling in the despair of death, but Jesus Christ also has the power to do something about it. And this is where we turn now to the final section. Lazarus rises in verses 38 to 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. 
when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Friends, in the Old Testament, we read about people being um, resurrected, actually. Believe it or not, this is not the first resurrection in the Bible. We read about it with Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. They both have uh, different resurrections. But in those passages, it's very interesting. If you go read, it seems like a very short resuscitation time frame from when the person died to when they resurrected. It's almost like you know CPR was going on and, and 10 minutes later or an hour later that they were, they were revived. But, but here, with Lazarus, the, the point is made. Four days dead is a long time, friends. I've left out leftovers out of the fridge for just a couple days, and you know what happens. Imagine in a warm culture, in a warm climate, where the body is decaying for four days. And here, Jesus being deeply moved, he's not perturbed. Jesus uses no mud. He uses no anointing oil. He doesn't even touch Lazarus. What does Jesus do? He just speaks. And we're reminded of something about God. Our God is a speaking God. And he's a God who, um, throughout his word, always does the creative act of bringing life by the word. So Genesis 1, God spoke. God spoke Adam into life and and Eve and God does this here with Lazarus he speaks the same voice that calls the stars and the planets into existence and spoke you in his as his creation into his existence is the same God who speaks life into us and all this is done as scripture shows again and again to the glory of God and so if we back up a moment here no, no words from Lazarus. Lazarus does not end up uh, coming out with his uh, best-selling New York Times book of what it was like to be dead for four days. Uh, we don't get any of that. But what we do get here is, is Jesus who returns to Judea, where his life was on the line. We, we, Judea would have had posters put up with Jesus' face on it saying, wanted, dead, or alive, and preferably dead. And Jesus, knowing that threat, walks back in out of love and compassion to raise his friend from the dead. And and, and it's ironic, even as this is all to the glory of God, and resurrection power is amazing. Ironically, what do we read here just right after this? It's right there in the title of your your Bible, the plot to kill Jesus. (laughs) On, On one hand, Jesus putting his life at risk to raise Lazarus from the dead. The next section, let's kill him. standing right side by side. And yet, John chapter 11 taps into the deep questions about life. Without John 11, I think you and I were left clutching onto material possessions of decay and memories of us that disappear with just within a few generations. So you and I were right back to the open casket, wondering, does any of our life have any sort of lasting value or meaning? Uh, The famous writer Leo Tolstoy, he puts it this way, my question That which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot even live. It was this, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why should I wish for anything or do anything? 
He says, it's also, it can be expressed like this. He says, is there any meaning to my life in which my inevitable death that is awaiting me does not destroy? And John chapter 11 declares and proclaims to us loudly this morning, yes, finally, our lives have real, true meaning. Because Jesus Christ not only shows that he has empathy for those who are reeling in the despair of death, but he also has the power to do something about it. So join me this morning with Martha and saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And let it echo in your ears this morning to hear, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Would you pray with me? Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, we believe. And by your spirit, I ask, would you help our unbelief? So that we can trust that you hear us, that you care, that you feel our pain. And that we can trust that one day we will rise like Lazarus and never to die again. And it will be even better than we can imagine. So we lift up this morning your word. Let it speak into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.